Hello, Probable Causation listeners. I have a special treat for you today. We're unlocking one of our bonus episodes, originally available only to Patreon subscribers. In it, my friend David Isle interviews law professor Rachel Barkow about her book, Prisoners of Politics. It's a fascinating conversation about how to make criminal justice policy more evidence-based that I think you'll really enjoy. If you like what we're doing here on Probable Causation, and for more great bonus content like this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash probable causation. There's also a link on our website. As always, thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, the show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, David Isle, and if you're not already pumped up from the Probable Causation intro music, you will be once you hear who my guest is today. She is Professor Rachel Barkow. Professor Barkow is the Vice Dean and Siegel Family Professor of Regulatory Law and Policy at the NYU School of Law and the Faculty Director of the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law, also at the NYU Law School. She served as a commissioner on the United States Sentencing Commission from 2013 to 2019, and most importantly for our conversation today is the author of Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, released earlier this year and available wherever you buy books. Professor Barkow, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to start out right on the title page of your wonderful book with the title Prisoners of Politics, because I, I think it captures nicely your view that politics, or at least American politics, is inherently at odds with a rational criminal justice policy. What's the basis for that view? Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate and tragic truth that we end up with some pretty bad criminal justice policies. And by bad, I'm going to define that for now as producing poor public safety outcomes, because I really do think a lot of the time uh, voters, politicians think they're giving us policies that will be good for public safety when in fact they're not. You know, they often backfire and make things worse. But I think we end up with policies like that because we have a political process that's just not well suited for looking at facts and data and really analyzing the things that work. Instead, you know, it's a kind of process that is set up to produce sound bites and to uh, endorse policies that may superficially sound like they would be tough and therefore effective. But when you look closer at the data and information about whether things work, they don't. Um, but we just can't have that kind of dialogue because the political environment in which these decisions get made isn't a space for that kind of rational reflection. Is that something about today's political environment specifically? In other words, uh, is it kind of a, a Twitter or soundbite era thing? Maybe in previous generations, um, you know, we just picked the wise individuals out of our society and, you know, they deliberated and considered these facts outside of this kind of thunderdome of, um, you know, constant news coverage. Um, or is this something that's always basically been a feature of American politics? It's always been a feature of American politics. And one of the really interesting things, if you go back and look at debates among the framers and the founding generation, is they talk about the tendency of the public to be really severe in criminal cases. So the framers put in various constitutional protections precisely because they recognize that people could be pretty easily aroused <laughs> to, to want to impose severe punishments. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that the Bill of Rights 
is, you know, has disproportionately made up of provisions to protect individuals in criminal cases. So, you know, that dynamic has been with us uh, from the nation's founding. But but what has changed over time, because there have been some differences, is the architecture of the institutions that impose punishment. And, you know, over time, we have just made it much easier for the politics of the masses and those kinds of judgments to be directly translated into policy, whereas previously, you know, we've had different institutions set up that have mediated that and have checked it somewhat. But but we've lost some of that. And, you know, I mean, I could highlight a few if you like, or, um, you know, we could talk about it more abstractly, but, uh, you know, just to highlight too quickly, you know, so one is the, the push to having prosecutors and judges and sheriffs be elected officials. You know, that's not something that takes place at that outset of our nation's history, but develops when we have this kind of Jacksonian period of, of, democracy everywhere. And, you know, that has real consequences for how criminal justice policy ultimately gets made to have these officials who are voted on precisely because of how they set criminal justice policy and impose sentences, you know, that's a big shift. And and then certainly there's shifts over time in terms of how our nation addresses other social problems and issues. And so there's a strong relationship between, for example, um, how the United States deals with questions of race and racial justice and control over minority populations and its use of criminal justice. And so you definitely see shifts in criminal justice policy that correspond to changes in civil rights and how we're addressing uh, populations of color in the United States. So what's your, um, what are the institutions that you would build to solve this problem or at least somewhat insulate it from this dysfunction in popular politics? Yeah, so I think it's really important to recognize, you know, there still would be democratic control over this, you know, so it's not like there'd be some freestanding bureaucratic entity of elites setting policy that the people wouldn't control. Um, instead, it would just look very much like how we set policy in other spaces of American life. So it's not the case that, you know, we directly elect the person who's responsible for environmental policy or environmental enforcement, or that we have a public referenda on what environmental policy should be. You know, instead, we elect our representatives, and then they have established an agency that's charged with looking at data and science and information to try to figure out how we best balance our desire for clean air uh, and clean water with economic consequences. And we could do something very similar to that in the criminal justice sphere. You know, we could, again, have our elected leaders knowing what our goals are with criminal justice, that we, we want public safety, we want to protect individual liberty, we have an interest in retributive justice, but but have officials who can then say, okay, let me look at what we know about various policies that work and don't work. So we get better policies to promote those goals. So so that's one thing. It's just kind of using that architecture that's very familiar in American life, regulating everything from workplace safety to the environment. We we know how to deal with public health and safety in other places. And weirdly to me, uh, we just haven't done it in criminal justice administration. So, so that's kind of one basic architectural point. And the other would be just reforming some of the institutions we already have that are in the business of criminal law administration to make them better. Um, you know, so that would be thinking about reforming how prosecutors go about their day-to-day -day jobs, um, how judges uh, go about their jobs, and how they're selected. Yeah, so you're kind of um, ideally positioned, uh, given your expertise and practical experience with the Sentencing Commission and, and administrative law, um, 
So what are the lessons that you've learned from administrative law generally that you could bring to bear on this particular issue? Well, I think one thing, we, you know, so administrative law is not perfect. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that. And certainly existing criminal justice agencies that are doing some of this, you know, they're not perfect either. But, you know, I a big believer in the as compared to what line of inquiry. <laughs> and if you say, okay, well, we could keep doing criminal justice policymaking as we currently are, but if we compare it to what would it look like if we turned that kind of administrative law agency model, you know, would it be better? And and the answer is yes, it would be better for a few reasons. So one is agencies have to explain why they're doing what they're doing and they have to point to facts and evidence to back up their decisions. You know, that seems like the most basic stuff, but we don't ask that of anyone in criminal justice. So if you think, okay, wow, we have all these people who are incarcerated in America, you know, 2.2 million people incarcerated, um, record highs historically, records uh, compared to other countries around the world, you would think we would evaluate those prisons to say, hey, are they doing a good job? You know, what happens when people come out of there? Um, you know, which prisons work better than other prisons? What what kind of programming? And the the really kind of shocking fact is that we don't have any accountability for our nation's prisons or our jails in terms of the outcomes they produce. Just not. They could set whatever policies they want in there, and there's no evaluation. There's no requirement that they point to particular facts as to why they're doing one thing versus another. Um, and the same is true for prosecutorial judgments and practices. You know, these are seat of the pants intuitive calls that prosecutors make in their offices about where they want to put their enforcement resources, how much uh, they want to seek sentences for certain people. And it's all just based on kind of gut instinct and their own intuition. Uh, if we had a different kind of model that said, hey, you know, maybe we should have guidelines that have been set by an agency that looks at information and data about what we actually know, you know, I do think we'd get different outcomes and they'd be better. Um, and I can just give you one example to make this a little bit more concrete. So I think if you ask the average person, and, you know, this would include prosecutors, because I've seen their testimony in legislatures about this, you know, what What kind of crime is burglary? Is burglary a violent crime or not? Um, you know, and then therefore, what kind of sentence should burglary get? And, you know, I've heard from countless prosecutors, of course, it's violent. And, you know, maybe even the average person on the street might say, well, of course, someone coming into your home, you know, what could be more of a potential for violence or confrontation than something like that? You know, and, and I get where that intuitive assessment might come from. But, you know, we actually have thousands upon thousands of cases of burglaries that we could look at to, to ask, what does a typical burglary look like? And when you do that, you find 97% of them involve no contact with any individuals at all, because most people who engage in burglaries don't want to get caught. And so they, they deliberately seek out empty spaces um, in which to go inside and commit their crimes. Um, and so it's the rare case that would involve any kind of confrontation and rarer still that that confrontation would lead to violence. So when we're setting sentences and policy for burglary, you know, we should set those policies thinking about the 97% of cases that don't involve any kind of violence. And for those rarer cases that do, fine, we could give greater sentences in those cases. But those are the exception and not the rule. But we have currently set our policy based on the exception because there's this kind of gut instinct that that must be true. And I mean, there's countless examples of things like that, where if you have a decision-making structure in place of people who just go with what they think must be right, um, they're often wrong. And you could get a better outcome if instead you said you said to an agency, hey, look at the data, tell us why you set 
this policy where you did, then they have to look at the facts and the evidence and, and they would have to come out with a different outcome as a result. So uh, when you say that agencies, you know, have to explain and uh, look at the data and, um, you know, have a reason for the what result they come out with, to whom are they explaining? Would it be typically to a legislature or a court that's reviewing their decisions or the public? Yeah, so a great question. And I think they need to be explaining it to a couple different places. So one, I do think it's important that there be judicial review. So we in the federal system, you know, agencies are governed by the Administrative Procedure Act, and they face judicial review to make sure their decisions aren't arbitrary and capricious. And in the course of that review, they the agency has to explain and point to facts and data to back up what they're doing. And and I think that's a really important component because I think having that judicial oversight is a critical check on, frankly, the political pressures that undoubtedly would be brought to bear on these agencies. You know, if they didn't face judicial review, you'd see all the same political pressures uh, that we see now when politicians pass policies directly. So instead of, you know, them wanting to seek longer sentences, they would just demand it of these agencies. And having judicial review is a really nice nice check for those agencies to be able to say, you know, we can't do that. You know, we have to go where the evidence uh, requires us to. So judicial um, review is one one place where they have to explain. You know, I do think there's a role for explaining what they're doing um, to the public and to legislative overseers. You know, there, I, I will say I'm a little less optimistic that there'll be a lot of care taken to <laughs> to what they're explaining. And it may get lost in a battle of sound bites with people saying, oh, that agency, how ridiculous would it be for them to treat burglary that way? Um, but, you know, it's possible that some of that breaks through and, and there is a more rational discussion. Maybe the media can see the output of these agencies and better understand understand issues when there's policies and reports, and then that in turn can better educate the public. Uh, you know, another possible audience and another means of controlling what agencies do uh, is is also, you know, other folks in the executive branch. So at, again, it just take the federal government as an example, but this could be true in states as well. You know, agencies have to explain their decisions uh, as cost-benefit justified, that it's worth making an investment in a particular policy uh, because the benefits we get outweigh those costs. And you know, tons of criminal justice policies fail that test that we currently have. But if an agency actually had to explain why a policy is or isn't cost-benefit justified, you know, we would get rid of some of the bad ones. Um, and so that model of fiscal discipline is, is also really important. And again, you know, that could speak to multiple audiences. It could be, you know, executive overseers who look at cost-benefit analysis. But but it could also be the public who may be surprised to find out how inefficient and expensive and poorly executed many of these policies are. So could you explain maybe uh, for, say, a law student who is taking constitutional law but not administrative law, um, why, how this kind of review differs from, say, when the court is reviewing um, a law under rational basis review, which is for the those who haven't even taken constitutional law. Uh, a very permissive, I would say, form of review where they have to think that a, a law is really completely has no base, reasonable basis whatsoever um, to support it. But this sounds more stringent than that. Yeah. So if we're talking about um, what's known as arbitrary and capricious review of agency decisions, which is the standard that comes from the Administrative Procedure Act, and there's state counterparts to that. So that's a very common standard throughout state and federal law, which is that agencies can't engage in policymaking that's arbitrary and capricious. And as you said, this isn't a super deferential standard that we would see when we're thinking about rational basis review, where we say to legislators, hey, look, you know, you're 
your elected representatives. Um, and as long as you have a rational basis for believing what you're doing, we're just not going to second guess you. And rational basis doesn't require you legislator to point to any evidence at all. You know, we're just going to basically uphold whatever you're doing as long as it's not blatantly discriminating on the basis of race or some kind of impermissible factor. It's different in the agency context because we do expect these agencies, which aren't directly accountable through elections like our legislators are, but are insulated to some degree. You know, one of the means by which we do hold them in check and keep them accountable is to make them explain that they're exercising the authority that's been vested in them by legislative bodies, that they're exercising it in an appropriate manner. So, you know, they can't behave arbitrarily and capriciously. And, and the way courts review that is to say, look, agency, you have to explain to us that there's evidence backing up what you're doing, you know, why you're making the policy calls that you are. Now, there's still some deference there, but it's not absolute deference. In the, and it's certainly not as, as um, deferential as rational basis review. So if we see how that's been applied in other contexts, uh, because it's not the common standard in criminal law. Uh, but if you see how it's applied, for instance, in the space of um, environmental policies or workplace safety regulations, you know, there's examples of court decisions saying, hey, you know, look, agency, you, you didn't explain why this new safety standard is actually going to work. Or, you know, you had you used to have a safety standard that said something completely different, and now you're shifting, and you haven't told us why. Um, and that's not okay. You know, you've got to explain those kinds of shifts in policy, or you need to explain why there's evidence to back up what it is that you're doing. And so, you know, it's a kind of, um, in some ways, it's very common sense to just say, hey, <laughs> you know, to an actor, just tell us why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but when it comes to criminal law decision making, that is an, that would be an extraordinary shift from what we have now, because as I said, no one has to explain anything that they do. So that's kind of the uh, agency's accountability to the court. Um, what about to the public, maybe through the legislature. So you want to insulate this decision-making from the public somewhat, but not entirely. So um, would legislatures ideally have the ability to kind of override a policy if they really disagree strongly enough with the agency or something like that? Or how would that work? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just, you know, maybe it's it's easiest, I think, just to remember, this is what we do in almost every other sphere of regulatory life. So, you know, if, for example, um, the Environmental Protection Agency were to decide that it wants to pass certain emission requirements, it has the authority to do that under its governing statute. And, you know, it would have to explain to a court why it picked the standards that it did. And, and you know, suppose the court upholds it. So that's the that's what is put in place. That would never stop Congress from saying, oh, gosh, we think that's terrible and passing a, a new statute that says, actually, the emission standard should be something completely different or a statute that just says it's not what EPA just said. The the authority remains with the legislative body. But but the reason why this kind of shift would make a difference is because many of the policies that agencies adopt, even if the legislative body wouldn't do it directly, if they had the authority, they'll go ahead and let it stay in place when an agency does it because, you know, they don't necessarily take the political hit for it because, um, you know, they didn't directly make the decision. And what I think they often find is when the agency does engage in this kind of policy making, they finally get to see there are good policies um, and so, and the policies can kind of make a case for themselves. So if the agency is doing a good job, it should be adopting things that are working and working well. 
And if those things are working and working well, then the legislature will kind of keep their hands off of it and let it stay in place. Now, it's it's not perfect, but but it's helpful. And and then of course the other big thing is that you know you our political process is not one that is easily. Uh, amenable to new laws. <laughs> it's all criminal law, I guess, is, is kind of an exception where we actually do kind of get legislators agreeing uh, to pass harsher laws or frankly engage in bad policy making on a fairly uh, rapid basis. But but it's not that easy. And so if the agency does something, you'd still, for example, if it's the federal level, you'd need to get the House of Representatives and the Senate to agree to pass a new law and the president to sign that law. And, you know, that's not always easy. And, you know, similarly at the state level, um, to have an override by the state legislative process, you know, that that's not so such an easy slam dunk. And so it just kind of shifts that burden of inertia in favor of this agency model, which in turn is based on information and data and the best knowledge we have. And so if you want to override that, you have to use your energies in that direction. Whereas what we currently have is a system set up that political actors should just go on their gut instinct. The policies are set that way, or they're set by prosecutors or prison administrators who don't aren't accountable to anyone. And, you know, to overrule those kind of decisions takes a lot more because the, you know, kind of the politics and the lay perceptions of these issues tend to align with the same kind of gut instincts that the politicians and the prosecutors may already have. And so you really just can't get that same kind of um, political will that you need to override it. Whereas I think it, it would be a little bit easier um, in the context of agency decisions to keep those things in place if that's where the where things first started. You know, inertia would work in favor of rationality. And, they, and the agencies possibly hopefully at first, and then um, even more hopefully over time, build up a kind of authority with the public that's maybe more difficult to, maybe like the Fed. Like I, I view the Fed as uh, kind of a, a generally respected institution, you know, in American life and politics and is able to kind of weather some periods where people are complaining about interest rates being too high or whatever. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, so that one is set up as a kind of a super insulated agency, right. um, both as a matter of design, but also norms. You know, we've kind of accepted, I mean, these norms are breaking down on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the Fed is certainly one of those agencies that is being attacked like it has never been before. Um, but traditionally, you know, there was this sense of, you know, that's a respectable agency that's done a very good job taking care of our economy. And so makes the case for people to want to protect it and certainly for business interests to want to protect it. And so you you start to get a constituency that really does protect the agency. And and I think that could develop in criminal justice as well. I do think um, the agency could make a very good case for itself and, and start to develop people who really do want to protect what that agency is doing because it would improve public safety. It would improve cost savings. There's all kinds of ways in which these agencies really do make a case for themselves. And, and you know, one example of that um, from the real world, so it's not just theoretical, is there's a lot of um, states around the country that have sentencing commissions that are charged with passing and promulgating sentencing guidelines, and they're supposed to do it in a way that's fiscally responsible so that they don't go over existing state prison capacity. And when these agencies make their recommendations, even if legislators might want to score those kind of cheap political points about, you know, let's increase sentences, let me sound tough, um, what stops them is the fiscal benefit of having the agency do what it's doing because they are actually making it so they don't have to spend more money building new prisons. And so in states that have these sentencing commissions that do the fiscal impact work, 
we see plenty of examples of legislators just frankly standing back and letting the agency go ahead and do what they're doing because they don't want to have to spend the money to override that and they see the benefit of the analysis that the agency has done. So I, I think as, as this uh, conversation is brought out, um, one of the central claims that you rely on heavily is that we're not doing a good job of even maximizing public safety. So, I mean, I think everybody thinks of the people who advocate for uh, really punitive criminal justice policy as being people who are just really concerned with public safety, but you're claiming that they're not doing a good job of advancing that goal. So um, what's the best evidence in favor of that position? Yeah, and, and I think they could be well-meaning, by the way, you know, so I'm not I, I'm not sure that anyone who advances that position sort of knows that it's not working. In fact, just the opposite. I think they have really a strong belief that they must be right. Um, but I'll give you a couple examples where the evidence just proves that to be incorrect. So one would be um, take pretrial detention. So we have of the 2.2 million people who are incarcerated in the United States, uh, a little less than 500,000 of them are in our nation's jails and they're there pretrial. They haven't been convicted of anything, um, but they're being detained until their case gets uh, adjudicated. And when you talk to prosecutors um, or police officers or you hear media accounts, you know, the, the intuition that is often uh brought forward is that, well, that's good because while someone is detained pretrial, you know, they're not free uh, to commit more crimes. So it's it's good for public safety to detain somebody pretrial. And if you hear news accounts about pretrial detention, you know, the stories you would end up hearing would just be examples of someone who wasn't detained pretrial and then went on to commit a heinous crime. You know, so you'll hear, you know, why wasn't this person detained? You know, where was the failure? So, you know, that's the conventional wisdom about pretrial detention. And that's what gives us, you know, um, half a million people who are being locked in cages uh, based on that kind of political and conventional wisdom. Um, in fact, when empiricists have looked at pretrial detention to find out, uh, so they've compared people who are similarly situated, um, same kind of crime, same kind of criminal record, you know, what's the difference if one of them is released pretrial versus detained pretrial. And what they have found is the detention itself makes it more likely when the person gets out that they'll commit additional crimes. Um, and when you stop to think about it, it starts to make sense because pretrial detention, you know, you're locking somebody away pretrial. That means if they had a job, they have lost that job. You know, if they had come up with childcare arrangements or housing, um, quite likely they've just lost that. They often lose custody of their children when they're detained pretrial. So it's an enormously disruptive event in somebody's life to be detained even for a short period of time. And so when that person is ultimately released, you know, they are really starting from a position of great difficulty now to try to kind of get their life back together. And you could imagine how that could create a situation that makes somebody more likely to turn to criminal activity precisely because their entire world had been upended. And that's what the the evidence shows us. Um, so, you know, that would be an example of something that I think the conventional wisdom just assumes that detention is better. Um, but in fact, it's going to make everybody less safe in the long run, precisely because it's going to have these effects later. Um, another example of something like that would be sentence length. Um, and for a similar dynamic, you know, the thought is, oh, we're going to get 
um, greater deterrence if we give longer sentences and, you know, maybe the longer sentence is going to incapacitate people for a longer period of time from committing additional crimes. And and there's just a inability to recognize that 97% of the people who are incarcerated come back out again. Um, they, they rejoin society, they reenter. And the question is, what does it mean when they reenter if they've served longer periods of time? Um, and so there's a really interesting study that they uh, that was done in Texas that found for every additional year that somebody is incarcerated, there's a four to seven percent increase in their recidivism risk. You know, and again, it may be counterintuitive at first, but if you stop to think that, you know, the longer you're incarcerated, the more it's going to damage your social networks, the, you know, longer amount of time you've been away from technological developments, um, maintaining your relationships with people, staying up to speed on what's going on in the world, you know, you realize it's it's very disruptive to come back out again. And so I think those kinds of trade-offs with, yes, you get maybe a short-term benefit from incapacitation or incarceration, but if you're not able to ask, but what happens then when that person is ultimately released? You know, are the costs outweighing the benefits of the incapacitation? I think that's an example where when you look at research and evidence, you see we could get better public safety outcomes by incarcerating less. And these are, um, by incarcerating less, we're, of course, speaking kind of on the margin. All these studies are, uh, you know, comparing to where we are and moving policy kind of a bit one direction or the other. Uh, so the kind of marginal people we might see getting a shorter sentence um, would be a, a subset of the people who are currently incarcerated and maybe likewise the people who are detained before trial. Um, so how... Uh, who are the kind of people who are currently incarcerated that would be the best targets for either earlier release or no pretrial detention? And if we adjusted policy to target them and maximize public safety, take advantage of these benefits, how much of a decrease in the incarcerated population might we be talking about? I think it should be huge because the default should really be release. You know, so for pretrial, um, very few, infinitesimally small numbers of people need to be detained pretrial. Um, and for the most part, you know, so the two reasons that jurisdictions give for detaining someone before they've actually been adjudicated guilty are flight risk that they won't show up for their trial um, or a concern with public safety. Um, and mainly that concern is with with violence, although, you know, it could be any other criminal activity. But I do think the, the bigger concern is that it's going to be criminal activity that's going to you know physically harm another person. Um, when it comes to flight risk, you know, it's it's such a ridiculous way to deal with that, because for the most part, the overwhelming majority of people who don't show up to their trial, it's because they forgot. Um, so it's a little bit like what doctor's offices now do, where they send you a million reminders and so you make your appointment. The jurisdictions that have good notification systems have solved their, pre uh, have solved their uh, appearance at trial problem. Um, so you don't need detention for that. And in terms of using detention there um, because of a concern with public safety, it should be a very small number of people that this concern is raised with. We we overdo it right now because no politician, no judge, no prosecutor wants to be held to blame for the one person who commits the crime while they're released. But the fact is that the overwhelming majority of people released won't do anything bad, right? They don't want to jeopardize their case while they're waiting. It's going to be really rare that somebody does something. Um, but we don't have a good system in place because we basically have a zero tolerance for risk in this area. 
area. Um, you know, a classic example of this one would be when the presidential campaign of George H.W. Bush ran the ad about Willie Horton against Michael Dukakis. It was about this furlough program in Massachusetts when when Dukakis was the governor. And one of the people who had been released on one of these weekend furloughs from the Massachusetts penal system um, committed a really heinous crime against a couple, raped the woman, really brutally beat the um, the man. And the the ad was about how Dukakis, you know, allowed this to happen. You know, what wasn't said was that furlough program had a 99.9% success rate. <laughs> you know, in, in every other case, people went on their furlough and they came back and there were no problems at all. But of course, an ad like that means you don't get any furlough programs. You know, you lose it for the 99.9% because of that very small risk. And I think if we wanted a more rational criminal justice policy, we need to start reckoning with the fact that, yeah, there are going to be some cases like that that occur. But the net benefit of having those programs makes us more safe overall because there's benefits to those programs. There's benefits to not detaining people pretrial because fewer of those people will then commit crimes later. And so that's actually a large number of people. You know, that that's a, a huge chunk of folks that don't need to be incarcerated. In terms of the people who are detained um, after conviction, so they're serving their sentences, you know, I... I think you could find you could dramatically reduce sentences across the board. Um, you know, for starters, most people are going to age out of their criminal activity. You know, if we're talking about uh, crimes that involve physicality, um, so violence, physical kinds of contact with others, um, those kinds of crimes, there's a age crime curve, that data is well established um, and has been, you know, we've known about that, you know, for decades and decades, it's all very consistent, every one of those studies that people just age out of those kinds of offenses. So certainly you could take populations of people as they're getting older and quite safely um, release them from facilities. Uh, you know, you could also think about reducing sentences uh, by a certain percentage. Um, and that actually does have a big effect on the prison population. Uh, you know, I can give you an example from the federal system. The Federal Sentencing Commission, when I was there, reduced all federal drug sentences um, by roughly 20 percent. It was two levels under the guidelines, which amounts to about a 20 percent cut and made those reductions retroactive so that if you were currently serving a, a sentence for drugs, you could petition a court. And as long as there wasn't a, you know, red flag in your record about public safety, um, get the reduction. And just about everybody who applied got the reduction. You know, it was almost 40,000 people that got this reduction of almost 20%. And, you know, as the commission studies this recidivism data, there's just no evidence that it's having any effect on recidivism. And, and you know, the commission was able to study it for a population of people who committed crack offenses um, because those sentencing reductions took place uh, earlier. And so it was possible to follow those folks five years later and say, hey, you know, the people that got the earlier release, they got their 20% reduction. How did they compare with the people who had to serve? Of their full sentence, um, you know, did it make any difference? And and the data showed no. You know, if, uh, in fact, the folks who got the early release had a slightly uh, lesser recidivism rate. It just wasn't statistically significant, but certainly no evidence that they were an increase of a risk. And that was for a group of offenders who committed crack cocaine offenses. And the Department of Justice, many prosecutors argued against giving it to those folks because, you know, they made a claim that that group of offenders um, had a particular propensity for violence because of the nature of trafficking in crack cocaine, um, and it just didn't bear out. So I actually think it could make an enormous difference reducing sentences, dramatically limiting pretrial detention. I want to push you a little bit more on the pretrial detention point because uh, 
while e- even if you know everybody who's let out pre-trial comes back to trial and none of them commit a new offense, a lot of them, I, I don't know if you have a guess at the exact percentage, but many of them are going to end up getting convicted or pleading, pleading guilty and serving the time after conviction that they would have conser- would have served pre-conviction. And certainly they're in a better place to litigate their case and bargain with the prosecutor, but still probably a large percentage of them are going to end up doing at least some time. Um, so it's probably not the whole 500,000 that can be um, reduced from the incarcerated population, but some percentage? Well, they'd be released from the pretrial population, right. but you are right that they um, they might serve others. I will say, though, there's a very large number, and I don't have the actual data in front of me to tell you that ultimately, once their case is adjudicated, they just get time served. Um, and so it may be that they would have never been given any time at all. And it is also true, as your question suggested, that people who are released pretrial have better case outcomes um, because it's easier for them to work with their lawyers. You know, their life isn't being disruptive, so they have more successful outcomes. So um, it, it, it is also true that it helps with the disposition of their case. And I do think for many of them, there'd be no detention at all because there's so many cases that just end in time served. And I want to ask, too, about um, there's kind of a, perhaps a seeming tension, um, or it seems to me, but uh, I hope you'll clear it up, uh, between the claim that people age out of crime and that longer sentences are criminogenic. Um, I mean, the picture I get of longer sentences being criminogenic is that when you release somebody after a long sentence, so this would be a relatively older person compared to somebody who got a shorter sentence, um, they're going to commit, they're more likely to commit crime because they've spent a bunch of time uh, in prison. Um, but the aging out hypothesis kind of goes the other direction where the older uh, releasees are not likely to commit crime. So is am, am I right to think that there's a tension there? Do these two phenomena apply to different populations? Yeah, so it, in an ideal world, and this was one of my frustrations as a sentencing commissioner, I wanted to find the social scientist who could kind of give me the tipping point, <laughs> you know, who could identify for me, you know, this is the point at which the incapacitated, you know, incapacitation benefit um, outweighs the cost on the other end that happens when someone is released, right? You'd want to be able to kind of figure out what that is, and maybe it varies by um, offense type, but that data is just not available. So there is a tension there, and we don't know exactly where those numbers are, but there are some things and some benchmarks we could use. You know, so one would be to just think about the additional years that you're asking somebody to serve after they've reached the end of the age crime curve when it's highly unlikely they're going to be committing more crimes. And I should, by the way, just say the age crime curve is true for most crimes, but not for everything. Um, You know, fraud, for example, actually is the kind of crime that uh, individuals don't necessarily age out of. And sometimes it's a crime of opportunity that requires people to be older, to be in positions where they can embezzle uh, and engage in fraud. But, you know, for your basic street crime, um, that's something that the age crime curve is is a very reliable predictor. So, you know, if you have somebody who's been serving a sentence and they're 45 years old now, uh, you know, 
very few of those people are going to be committing additional crimes. So just keeping them in longer, you're you're not getting an incapacitation benefit anymore. You know, it's there's there's no benefit at all to that. You're just warehousing them for no good reason. Um, and in fact, you're just going to make their reentry that much difficult on the other end. And if you're not getting the incapacitation benefit because they wouldn't be committing crimes anyway, you know, you've made yourself worse off. So one rule of thumb could be to just look at the age of your prison population and re- look very closely at people who are older, who are incarcerated as a really good target population to release. I mean, we have an kind of an unconscionable number of people in America who are incarcerated, who are elderly um, or very sick and infirm. You know, that's another group of people that is just not presenting a public safety risk. People with terminal illnesses, you know, with with severe disabilities, they are incarcerated and they could be released without, with you know, without a public safety risk. So, you know, that's one way you could do it is kind of thinking about the relationship between their age and the and the risk of offending would be one thing. But, you know, the other thing that knowing that or having that information available could have us do would be to make better investments while people are incarcerated. Because, you know, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for people to reenter is we offer very little to no programming for people while they are incarcerated. You know, we're not, if, if all we're doing is kind of like waiting out the clock to release people and just using prisons as warehouses, um, then, you know, there's nothing being done productively with the time to try to counteract whatever underlying issues maybe led somebody to commit crimes in the first place. And we know that uh, large percentages of the people who are incarcerated have um, significant health needs, mental health needs, physical health needs, uh, that they have substance abuse problems. You know, those are all things that could be dealt with while someone is incarcerated. And, you know, they there's lots of studies to show that they're cost benefit justified, but but we don't offer those things and we don't offer education really um, or vocational training, whereas those things have all been proven to be really good at reducing recidivism. And, you know, that would be another example of the kind of thing that we don't do, not because it wouldn't be good policy. It would be. Um, but the politics of it are really tough because, you know, then you end up with discussions like why should someone who's in prison who committed a crime get education when, you know, I'm a hard worker and I can't afford education for my own children. And and so it becomes part of that political debate that makes it hard to do. But if we were just thinking about it as a policy matter, those are really good investments. So, so we could absolutely release many, many people earlier than we do. Um, we could target certain groups of people, particularly people who are older. Um, you know, I, I, this one is a little more controversial, but I will mention it. Uh, you know, we incarcerate many more women in the United States than we historically have ever done, um, and certainly more than than, you know, comparable Western democracies. And they present as a group a very low recidivism risk. Um, you know, whether or not there's a policy and a constitutional question about how you take that into account. Um, but, you know, that's a real issue. That's a very low risk population of folks to release. Um, and, you know, we they are often the custodial parent. Um, you know, certainly in many cases, uh, it's, a, it's a man who is, but but the numbers show it's, you know, it's disproportionately women who are. So incarcerating those folks not only has an effect on the recidivism risk, you know, of whether or not those folks represent a risk, but it has an effect on the children, on their children and makes it more likely that, you know, they are going to have trouble in school and, you know, have lots of other problems that make it more likely that they'll end up committing crime later. So there's ways in which we could think about offender populations and be more targeted. But but I really think there's a there's an opportunity, frankly, for a global reduction of sentences and, you know, a really large swath of releasing people pre-trial that are it's more than at the margins. I think those are very significant numbers and and benefits we could obtain. Um, I, I want to 
uh, focus a little bit more on, on both those issues that you raised, because uh, I think both of them kind of potentially at least drive a wedge, both between um, kind of utilitarian and retributivist theories of punishment, and also possibly between the kind of two sections of the title of your book, you know, Prisoners of Politics and Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, because I, um, you pointed out the ways in which it would improve policy and improve public safety to reduce prison populations, but at least I could imagine some ways in which um, they might be increased. So uh, in particular, let's talk about age. I think that's a nice one um, because when people age out, you know, you might think, okay, now we can release them from prison because um, they're not likely to commit another crime. But on the other hand, we might think, uh, okay, a 19 year old gets arrested for, you know, simple battery or whatever. Um, but it's, you know, a 19 year old man, let's say. And, um, you know, now that we've got him here in the courtroom and uh, he's done something to uh, render himself susceptible to punishment, we might as well keep him here, you know, incarcerated for a while because his rate of reoffending is high. Um, so I, I think that kind of drives a wedge between the retributivist goal of, you know, punishing somebody for the wrong thing that they did and the utilitarian goals of, um, you know, preventing future risks to public safety. Um, would the would you foresee an uh, expert agency negotiating those trade-offs too, or would they kind of be tasked with looking at the public safety part and then the rest of the political system would be in the position of trading off their decisions against other goals? Yeah, so I mean, I envision it more that the agency is well suited to do those utilitarian calculations to really think about public safety and, you know, what benefits and on net. And your example is really a great one. Um, and in fact, one that uh, came up at the Sentencing Commission when I was there, um, you know, what do you, th how, how should you think about people who are um, younger? Because we know from brain science that your brain isn't fully developed until about the age of 25. And so any criminal activity you engage in, um, you're less culpable for, um, precisely because because people of that age aren't good at appreciating risk, um, they're more susceptible to peer pressure. And so you could think of them as less culpable and therefore, as a retributive justice matter, less deserving of punishment. Um, and we certainly had you know, others on the commission say, but we also know that when people <laughs> commit crime at a young age, they're more likely to commit more crimes, you know, that, that they could have a, a longer criminal uh, stretch of time ahead of them. And so you are right that there could be a conflict um, between the two, the two justice, the two purposes of punishment. Um, I think an agency is is well situated to think about certainly the public safety aspects of it. Um, there's ways in which the agency could also think about some retributive justice goals because it, it is also possible um, for uh, a body of, of folks to look and just make sure that punishments adequately reflect the seriousness of an offense. So, for example, if you had a system, um, a jurisdiction that was punishing the actual abuse of children less severely than having images of children. Um, so if you're punishing child pornography to a much greater extent than the actual abuse of a child, you know, there's something wrong as a matter of retributive justice in doing that because, you know, there's universal recognition that the actual abuse of a child is worse. Um, and yet we have that, you know, we have that at the federal system. Um, so you could have an agency that could fix that kind of um, disproportionate punishment to make sure that at least as it's ranked, it's the punishment reflects the 
relative ranking of seriousness. But, you know, when you get to the deeper philosophical question, that's not about ranking and comparing one crime to another, but really is this trade-off between, you know, what if, um, you know, there's a desire to just use punishment as a preemptive matter to stop a risk of future crime, um, but it seems not retributively just to do so. You know, how do you, how do you deal with those two things? You know, and, and I think there's two things we should be doing there. You know, one, I do believe that um, the original history on this is quite clear that the Eighth Amendment bans disproportionate punishments, that it's, it's about retributive justice. It's about making sure punishments aren't excessive. And so courts could certainly be doing more to make sure that punishments aren't um, disproportionate. Uh, but in addition to having that kind of court oversight, you know, I do think you can have political assessments about how to deal with some of those things. But even if you didn't have that, you know, one more kind of footnote to this question of, of how you think about juvenile justice or the treatment of young people um, is it's just not the case that every juvenile who commits a crime at a young age is going to commit additional crimes. You know, it, it's true that some of them may, but but certainly not most. And you have another question about, well, what does it mean to intervene with a criminal justice response? Um, is that going to be better for public safety or worse? And oftentimes it's worse because you're going to now house them um, with adults who've committed criminal activity. They're a particularly vulnerable population when they're incarcerated, um, targets for sexual and physical abuse. Um, it creates, you know, traumatic uh, incidents for them that then have, you know, lifelong consequences for their behavior going forward. And so it, it's not the case that just intervening with a criminal justice response is this kind of either neutral or definite public safety benefit. It, it can make things even worse. Um, so, you know, even with the just kind of thinking about it from that utilitarian framework, it doesn't mean that you would impose punishment. Uh, and then just the last thing I'll say is currently, you know, we have a lot of laws on the book that reflect the idea of from the 19, you know, 1980s and 1990s, there was a very common perception of this kind of super predator myth that there were these young people and it was, you know, very much uh, racially biased in this way because, you know, it was talked about as these super predators and with imagery of young black youths. And the sense was that, you know, this was this that this generation didn't care about the law and needed to be incarcerated. And so we have all kinds of draconian, awful laws on the books right now that are really based on that idea of incapacitation and, and stopping those, uh, those, those children. Um, but we have lots of evidence that that approach doesn't work, that that's a misidentification uh, of who's likely to go on to commit crimes later. So, you know, even on its own terms, I do think it's a failed policy. But the broader point you make is is right, that there is going to oftentimes be some tensions between utilitarian goals and retributive justice goals. And, you know, if at the end of the day, um, usually it's going to work in the direction, frankly, that even if something doesn't work as a matter of public safety, the public might want it anyways because they're just really mad at somebody. Um, and, you know, there's there's not a whole lot that I can propose that can stop a polity that wants to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's always going to be true. One other point you brought up that I thought was interesting and could be another way that this process could, the uh, agency process could work to increase sentences in some ways is suppose that the agency recognizes that prison as it's currently constituted is criminogenic and they want to invest more in prisoner education, reentry programs, etc. And in so doing is able to generate a, a rehabilitative effect of serving time in prison. Um, but then that kind of destroys the incentive to give lower sentences, um, because now instead of prison being criminogenic, it's rehabilitative. 
And maybe in that case, we would want to impose longer sentences to give more time for people to rehabilitate. First of all, is that even remotely plausible, or is this just uh, so implausible given our current situation that's not worth thinking about? Um, and then second, in that case, would that just be the right answer, or should there be a different way for us to think about, in that case, lowering sentences? Yeah, so I think it is plausible if in the sense, you know, do you mean kind of well-meaning folks could say, well, I mean, I want to sentence you to this great space where you can get all the treatment that you need. Um, we have countless examples of that historically that judges did exactly that. Um, and so, you know, from frankly, you know, for uh, many, many years, decades, in fact, we had judges who thought, oh, yes, I'm going to sentence you to, you know, the penitentiary precisely because that's where you're going to get the help that you need. It, it comes from a model that was thought that's exactly what you needed to do to fix people. Um, so that kind of paternalistic, punitive mindset has existed. And I, I think it is a real danger that it could come back again. Um, but I do think there's ways that you could check it. So one, uh, for example, the when the Federal Sentencing Commission was created and the Sentencing Reform Act, you know, asking the agency to create guidelines, one of the things that that law states is that judges are not allowed to impose punishment solely to give them rehabilitation. You know, you're not supposed to give an incarceration sentence just so people can get some kind of programming in prison. So just making that explicitly barred as a rationale. You just can't do it. You can't think, oh, I really want you to get a prison sentence because that's where you'll get the drug treatment you need. That's not okay. So, you know, you could just take that off the table, um, first of all. But second of all, you know, the idea that because prisons could be made better might mean that people should be there longer, you know, assumes that you need you know, more of this thing for it to work, as opposed to thinking, you know, maybe all you need is six months, one year of really effective drug treatment. That doesn't mean you need five years of it, you know, or if, if what you're getting is um, certain kinds of vocational training, you know, that doesn't necessarily require you to be in prison for 20 years. So I, I don't think there's a necessary correlation between length of time and the success of this programming. Um, but I do think it's something to be careful about. I do think it's important to make clear that that can't be the reason that you're imposing punishment. Um, but having said that, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to improve those conditions because, you know, I, I read a really great uh, book is coming out by Frank Zibring, um, and I was lucky enough to read a draft. And one of the conclusions that he draws um, is that it's going to be, you know, very hard for us anytime soon to reduce our prison populations in any dramatic way, you know, that we're kind of stuck with a pretty large system of incarceration for the foreseeable future. And, and I agree with him. Um, and so if that's true, um, certainly thinking about making the conditions in those facilities better should be one of our goals. You know, I think we should still strive to reduce that population um, for sure, uh, but they're not mutually exclusive goals. And, and there's no reason they need to be mutually exclusive. You can continue to work for a reduction in sentences and, and getting more people out of prison while at the same time, for those who are in there for however long they're going to be there, making sure that you're making the best use of the time. So I think you can do it. You need to be careful to that risk because I think you're right. Um, but I think that's a problem that could be easily addressed. We've talked a bunch about the ways in which the political system is dysfunctional at addressing these issues, but um, you know, we're in the midst, kind of, even since your book has come out, there's been increased energy around, uh, you know, in the political public sphere around reforming some of these policies. And I'm wondering uh, if you see your project as uh, 
at odds with that movement or if it's complementary in some way? Well, I hope it's complimentary. And I will say that movement did not, um, you know, did not take me by surprise. I've seen it for a while. You know, it's, uh, we're seeing additional manifestations of it. But, you know, there, it's been a, there's been a growing interest among the general public, um, so Black Lives Matter activists, uh, what happened in Ferguson, the election of some of these prosecutors around the country on a decarceral agenda. You know, that, that predated the book, um, but it's continuing. Um, but one of the reasons I wrote the book was precisely because that was happening, because I have been concerned that to the extent people are finally paying attention to these issues and seeking reform, I think it's really important to channel that energy into the the kinds of reforms that are most likely to be effective and durable. And my worry is that a lot of what's being done right now is very small ball reform stuff. So yes, we're seeing reforms, but when you look at the actual content of what those things are, they are really minor. You know, they are things like changing the dollar amount to make something felony theft or thinking about, um, decriminalizing or lessening the punishment for marijuana, but not doing anything about every other kind of drug or for that matter, the sale of marijuana. Or, you know, it's dealing with the uh, population of people who are incarcerated, who have no sex offenses, no violent offenses, no, no, nothing serious. Um, but that, you know, that's a small proportion of the people who are incarcerated. You know, I think one of the things that reformers need to really think seriously about is that more than half of the people who are currently incarcerated are there for some kind of conduct that um, most people would characterize as involving violence, you know, physical contact with other human beings, or certainly the serious threat of doing so. And that means that if you want to have real reform, real reform of mass incarceration, you need to think about how you get reforms passed that also deal with that population and not just this group of kind of nonviolent, non-serious offenders. Um, and to get that kind of reform that would really make a dent in mass incarceration, I do think you need these kind of institutional changes. It, you know, it's just not enough to say you're going to elect a new prosecutor, but you're going to keep all the laws and the books that you have, and you're going to keep letting the legislators pass them. Um, because I could give you as many examples of things that have gotten more severe and more punitive um, as things that have gotten less, because we continue to li live with a political dynamic that that produces that. And the only way to break that logjam, in my view, uh, is to change the underlying institutions. And another area that you, you talk about towards the end of the book as uh, kind of neglected by activists is um, the election and appointment of judges. Could you talk a little bit about why, what role judges have to play in our system, why it's important to pay attention to them as well? Yeah, I, I really hope that that's one of the big takeaways um, is even if people don't like this idea of, you know, more information or data, most people understand the idea, you know, judges matter in our system. And, you know, certainly other advocacy groups get it. You know, if there's a vacant seat on the Supreme Court, um, you will see labor rights groups mobilizing, abortion rights groups mobilizing because they get it. You know, they get, hey, this this institution, the Supreme Court, is going to decide critical cases that affect these rights. So we need to get people on there that we think will protect those rights. What's fascinating to me is we have not seen that same kind of movement when it comes to protecting the rights of criminal defendants. You know, the, uh, we have seen even on the progressive liberal side, you know, had President Obama gotten his judicial nominee through to the Supreme Court, Judge Merrick Garland, who has much to commend him, you know, a really honorable person. Um, 
But, you know, former prosecutor has a whole track record on the D.C. Circuit of, frankly, being very pro-government in criminal cases. And the idea that, you know, that would be the justice you would get. You, you could find somebody who was equally protective of the other rights and interests that uh, Merrick Garland would protect and, you know, also smart and distinguished and honorable but also with some sign that they recognize how important criminal rights are, uh, criminal defendants' rights are as well. And I think one thing people may not know is that, you know, particularly the federal judiciary, I was able to count, um, but this is also true in states, is the judiciary is made up of a huge number of former prosecutors. You know, it's it's about 40 percent of the federal bench uh, compared to, you know, about 10 percent that have some kind of public defense experience. And if you add in not just the people who are criminal prosecutors, but were government enforcers in some other capacity, so they worked for the government, the ratio is seven to one. So, you know, you have a bench filled with people who represented the government to protect us, the citizenry, uh, you know, a document that's supposed to protect interests of individuals against the government. Um, but, you know, it's really stacking the deck to have that many former government employees on there. And I think it's really important to start getting more judges who have public defense experience, who have spent their careers protecting civil liberties. It'll make a big difference. There's so many areas of doctrine that are very deferential to the government that, you know, I think are not justified by the text of the Constitution, or if you're an originalist, they're not justified by the history. Um, and they're certainly not justified if what we're after is, you know, protecting individual rights in these cases. So the bench is a place that I think should be a huge area that people pay attention to. Um, and they should do it not just at the federal level, but, but you know, with state elections too, we elect judges in most places. And um, many of those judges run on tough on crime campaigns. Um, and it's really important for people who care about these issues to recognize that um, those kinds of campaigns, those they're not making them safer. Uh, they're very, they're often very bad policies and we should have more diversity in terms of the state bench as well. Is that, is the reason that um, C criminal justice act activists haven't kind of focused around judges so much because um that issue kind of cuts across partisan lines in a lot of ways and is not aligned with the other issues you mentioned that often get activated around, um, you know, appointments or elections. I mean, so one part of your biography that I, I left out in the introduction, but that people might be interested to know about is that you clerked for Justice Scalia, if I'm correct. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, and Justice Scalia was, um, you know, in many ways quite, uh, uh, he was kind of a protector of a lot of these civil rights that you're talking about. Um, but I doubt that many uh, progressive activists in the criminal justice space would find many allies in, um, you know, wanting to get him, uh, so people like him in uh, positions on the bench. Is that a big ob obstacle to organizing around judges I don't think so, because, you know, let's take when you have a Democratic president, you have uh, President Obama, you know, he there was no shortage of excellent people he could have turned to to fill that seat um, that had a different professional background than Merrick Garland. Um, you know, you could start the person I was waiting to see on the short list, the short list that I thought was really obvious was Brian Stevenson, um, you know. Brian is like the leading Supreme Court advocate of his generation, has transformed more important areas of Supreme Court doctrine than, than anyone I know. Uh, so as an exceptional advocate, committed to social and racial justice, um, you know, their exemplary character and intelligence, you know, who could be better? Um, 
but that model of a nominee just wasn't on anyone's radar screen. And I can tell you, I mentioned his name. There was someone who was kind of part of that decision-making process had asked me who I had thought would be a good person to think of for the open seat. And that was the first person I thought of. And the response I got was not, oh, right. It was, what? You know, <laughs> what way, you know, like, what? Are, what's what's wrong with you? You know, that he's not an existing judge. You know, he hasn't spent his life working for the government and then getting appointed to a court of appeals. You know, we have a certain model that we follow. Um, so to me, that has nothing to do with rallying criminal justice reform advocates. I guarantee you, if, if uh, Brian Stevenson had been the nominee, that would have like gotten people excited, uh, you know, and that the community would have been very happy to have that. Um, you know, you can think of plenty of other people who who fit that bill who would be wonderful. Um, you know, James Foreman, Cheryl and Eiffel. I could think of tons of people who work in the space of civil liberties, public defenders, um, and they would be terrific. But it's just it. I think we just haven't thought about it. And so one thing I hope to do here is really just kind of break through that and, and ask, why is that the case? You know, I, I think um, we just got into this pattern of thinking, there's a particular resume that you need to be appointed to the bench, but you know that's not required. And if anything, I think it's really problematic for the kinds of um, the way and the perception that that people view the cases. You know, I, I'm I think it just defies human nature to think that people who've spent their lives working on the government side of things, you know, will have the same healthy skepticism as someone who's also defended individuals and has sought to protect civil liberties and has seen examples of government abuse. You know, I think it's you need both. I, I am certainly not saying you only have one kind, but I do think it's important to have a mix. And we've gotten really out of balance. And, and I think another reason it's important to highlight this is I think people forget that there are rights enshrined in the Constitution institution that could do a lot to protect against mass incarceration. I mean, we have a court that has just let the Eighth Amendment basically fall into meaninglessness, but that's not what it should be. You know, that's a real protection against excessive punishments that just hasn't been used. And, you know, we do have prohibitions on using fines and fees against people um, who are too poor to pay. You know, that is unconstitutional, but we just don't have a bench that's enforcing it. And so I think when people start to pay more attention to the issue, um, the people who care about criminal justice, I, I think they'll, they'll be receptive to it. I will say, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, I have reached the entire population of people I want to reach, but, but when I have talked about this with people, I would say this is actually one of the takeaways from the book that seems to resonate the most. There, there's a kind of aha moment that's, that's, oh, right. You know, why wouldn't we have judges like that? Um, and, and that is my hope that people at least recognize that there's a population of really great lawyers and advocates who have just not been thought of as potential nominees for these positions, but they absolutely should be. Great. Um, and as a final question, uh, a lot of the audience for probable causation is social scientists, people doing research in this field. Um, as, you know, a legal academic and policy uh, entrepreneur, uh, what are the things that you would, the questions that you would like researchers in this field to be attacking? So I will say, I, first of all, I love social scientists and they're producing fantastic information. You know, many of the things I cite in the book come from, from the great research that's already been done. But, but there are a few areas. And by the way, that's not to say any of this would be easy because getting the data that you need to study some of these things is really tough. Um, but, you know, one would be, it would be great to start getting more studies um, comparing different prison programs and different prisons uh, to call attention to the places that are, are really worse than others. You know, we have no 
no ability right now to to rank them or to compare them. Um, and I'm certain that you know they would come back. We have different offender populations, but I, I think a an excellent social scientist with the ability to control variables and think about matching similar populations probably could tell us a lot uh, about how different prisons compare in terms of their outcomes when people are released and could measure the kinds of programming that's offered while people are there. Um, that would be one thing that I think would be really valuable and helpful to have. Um, you know, the other would be continuing to try to break down and work on this puzzle of, you know, how, how much can sentences be reduced um, and still reduce recidivism and get that public safety benefit, you know, to try to identify those tipping points, the, the tipping point at which, you know, there is a deterrent hit, you know, because I, I don't deny that there is a difference in someone's deterrence if you face a 50-year sentence versus you face five minutes. <laughs> um, but the there doesn't seem to be anyone uh, that, that cares about a difference between five years and seven years. And so, you know, getting a better handle on where those that magnitude of differences, um, you know, how much, where, do, where does it really start to make a difference? Uh, I think that would be really helpful, just thinking about that relationship between sentence length and and um, future risk of recidivism or desistance afterward would be, would be super helpful to have. Um, and then the last kind of category that I think would be great to have more information on is, is learning more about prosecutorial practices, you know, really studying how the decisions of prosecutors affect public safety outcomes, because um, that's another black box of criminal justice that we know very little about. Um, but I do think the reason that that one hasn't been studied um, is because they have not been very forthcoming with data or information. So mm -hmm. that's certainly not the fault of social scientists. But now that we have these um, newly elected prosecutors who are very committed uh, to progressive agendas, um, they are starting to make their data more accessible. I know Kim Fox in Chicago is going to be releasing lots of data from her office. And, and I would certainly hope there's lots of social scientists out there ready to see what they can learn from it um, and, and hopefully offer to partner up with other district attorneys who've been elected on that platform to see how they could help study patterns and practices in their office. I hope so, too. Uh, and I hope that uh, everybody will go and buy your book, uh, which, again, is Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. Professor Barkow, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a fun discussion. You can find links to the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show, and thanks, too, to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener-supported, so if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry, with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Warner, and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening.